Hey, this is Nancy Rommelman. A few months ago, I wrote about my favorite true crime books, and I decided to interview as many of the authors as I could. And my leadoff interview is with Catherine Miles. Uh, Catherine is the author of Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders, about the truly horrific unsolved 1996 murders of two young women uh, in Shenandoah National Park. Um, Catherine does what, to my mind, the very best true crime writers do, which is to take on the awesome responsibility of explaining the death of others with compassion and clear eyes and deeply empathetic reporting. Um, as she writes in Trailed, maybe, just maybe, when two selfless, joyful, beautiful humans die in a place, what's left behind is not the agony of their deaths, but the brilliance of their lives. I, I love Catherine Book. Catherine's book, and I will have links to it and to the other true crime books in the show notes. Um, Catherine Miles is a journalist and science writer whose other books include Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy, and Quakeland, On the Road to America's Next Devastating Earthquake. And now, here's my interview with Catherine Miles. Good morning, Catherine Miles. Hi, it's so great to be with you today. Third time's the charm. We've had some uh, from recording snafus, which is usual with this kind of stuff, but I'm really happy to be with you. I'm here in upstate New York, and you're up in Maine, where you said it's absolutely beautiful. Um, and I'm really, really excited to talk to you about your book, Trailed, which, um, full disclosure, I think your publicist sent me, you know, something about six or eight months ago saying, hey, there's this great book coming out. I think it's in your wheelhouse. And, you know, Things, I was in Ukraine reporting, whatever. It just sort of skated by. And then she was very smart and sent me something again. And I was like, so, so cool. Yeah, I'd love to read this. Your book, as I think I told you, was so all-consuming for me that I missed my bus. I was waiting for a bus <laughs> in New York City reading. And then I looked up and the bus was pulling away. So um, I, I'm going to, obviously, there's going to be links in the show notes here to get this book. I highly recommend it. I... I think I have some understanding, having written about murder myself, of why you wrote this book. But what I would love for you, I'm going to read you a quote, and then I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about um, Lolly Winans and Julie Williams. And the quote you have is, but maybe, just maybe, when two selfless, joyful, beautiful humans die in a place, what is left behind is not the agony of their deaths, but the brilliance of their lives. So, Catherine, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Yeah, I wrote that passage after I had first visited the murder scene in Shenandoah National Park, which was, for me, a pretty intense moment, you know, and I had been really worried about what that experience would be like. Um, but, you know, back to sort of the original point, which is is who who are Julie and who are Lolly, two really remarkable people. Julie was born and raised in a small town in Minnesota, um, um, small town family, Catholic values, and, um, you know, by all accounts was this young, bright, intelligent, caring woman who was really just born to serve. And she worked as a translator for Latinx uh, domestic assault survivors. She had done a lot of volunteer work, both in Latin America, um, on Native American reservations. Um, quiet, studious, but full of joy, full of love. And, you know, in May of 1995, she had attended a uh, program at Woods Women, which was this really remarkable sort of feminist outdoor organization that was built as a corrective to the more sort of masculine hierarchical models that uh, 
places like the National Outdoor Leadership School and Outward Bound had kind of fostered. So she was there in May of 1995 taking a leadership course. And that was when she had met Lolly Winans, um, who was also there. Lolly was kind of the yin to her yang. Um, she had grown up in a very affluent family. Um, it was a fairly dysfunctional family with a lot of um, abuse. So she was estranged from them um, and had really kind of wandered trying to find her identity and try to heal after all of that. She loved jam bands. Um, she loved Corona. She was always sort of the life of the party. And she had somehow eventually made her way to a small college in Maine called Unity College, where she had really found her calling, which was to create a wilderness program for um, sexual assault survivors where they could really kind of come to love their bodies again. Um, and it was that uh, that mission that she had, that goal that that took her to Woods Women in May of 1995, where they met. And, and by all accounts, it was really love at first sight. And they had this really glorious summer together in this very sort of, um, you know, queer, supportive community where they were really doing what they loved. Do you remember um, the first moment you you heard about what had happened to them? And we'll, you should probably, we'll, we'll tell the listeners now what did happen to them. Um, did you, the first moment you heard about it, did something inside you go, ping, I need to, I need to know more. Like I need to know more about how this happened. Yeah. And so they were murdered in May of 1996 while they were backpacking in Shenandoah National Park. And um, that weekend that they were murdered was my college graduation weekend. And so even though at that time, I really, I think, would have identified with them, both in terms of being a sexual abuse survivor, in terms of being someone who really kind of found a sense of healing and redemption in the wilderness. Um, and despite the fact that this was incredible national news when it happened, I think I was so self-absorbed with my own graduation and moving sure. out of my college apartment sure. and things like that, that I had missed it. And so it wasn't until about a year and a half later when I was in graduate school and I was hiking on the Appalachian Trail and had stopped for the night at what I thought for the night at a shelter um, and learned that that shelter had been the site of another very brutal double murder and sexual assault on the trail. You know, and in hearing about that, having come to love the trail and having come to believe that that's where I was safest, that revelation alone about this other couple, Molly LaRue and Jeff Hood, was really rattling to me. And it was immediately after I returned from that trip that I started to dig in and look and and learned not only about Lolly and Julie, which, you know, again, as somebody who was their, their age from, you know, from the Midwest, like they were, you know, just identified in multiple sort of like identity points with them. Um, and then other kinds as well, you know, mo a lot of which included women, you know, people who identified as queer, you know, and so that was really, really jarring for me, you know, to, to have to come to terms once again with what the wilderness was and who I was in the wilderness. And, and that has stuck with me ever since. So at that time you were already writing, correct? You, when you decided to say, okay, I am going to explore and try to figure out, um, you know, number one, who killed these women, but also like, what's going on in the woods here? Are we seeing a trend? Like, why are people not talking about this? Should we be talking about this? You were already a journalist and a writer, correct? When you 
started pursuing this particular story? Sort of. I mean, so that would have been 1998. And at that point, I was working on my doctorate degree, which was a doctorate degree. It was an English degree, but it was looking at gender and environmental studies. And so I was already really interested in this idea of wilderness access. Um, That was really important to me. Um, but, But I had sort of at that point foregone a lot of my sort of journalistic career in order to kind of pursue this scholarly career. Um, by total coincidence, in fall of 2001, I took my first college teaching job, and it happened to be at Unity College, this little crunchy environmental school where Lolly had been a student when she was murdered. And it was so obvious to me when I arrived on that campus just how big of an impact she had had when she was alive, and then also just the the lingering trauma and grief that her murder um still kind of fostered in this community five years later. So that was when it became very personal for me, you know, getting to know her friends, her colleagues, people like that. Um, But it really, I did not consider it an article or a book until the 20th anniversary. It was something that was sort of in my heart, but it wasn't really a professional project for me. Oh, so interesting. So uh, I've, you know, as we, we've, we kind of know about each other, I've, I've done similar work to what you've done. Um, in my experience, it becomes, for me, when I heard about the, the book that I wrote to the bridge, the children that were thrown off the bridge, I knew, as, that's why I asked you if you knew, I knew instantly that I had to pursue this. Um, and it becomes a weird I don't know if weird is the right word, but it's sort of an awesome responsibility in a sense to take on, you know, these people can no longer speak for themselves. Their stories um, are used in different ways. We're going to talk about that, you know, for, for good and for ill. And you sort of, you, you take on a responsibility of not just bringing these people back to life, which is sort of a simple way of saying it, but, but letting them, have their place and let their stories like have larger meaning, which is, which is kind of what you said, the brilliance of their lives. So um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, like what that, what that kind of feels like for you to have done that and to do that for these, for these young women and, and for us, frankly. (laughs) Yeah. And I would love to compare my experience with yours. So maybe you can chime in as well too, you know, For me, um, as a long-form journalist, I think really, um, you know, it's really about empathy and it's really about fostering relationships with people. Um, And, you know, I... I know about myself that I think part of what maybe makes me um, competent at this work is also kind of also my kryptonite with this work, which is that I get really sort of emotionally invested. Um, And so and sometimes have a hard time kind of like putting on like an emotional raincoat, like while I'm going in to do this, I tend to be kind of a sponge around that stuff. And so I think maybe it does make me if I'm sitting with someone and talking to them about the worst day of their life, the day that they lost someone that they loved or something really traumatic happened to them. I think maybe, you know, I think maybe that sort of empathetic side makes me a good sort of supportive listener, but it also means that the emotional impact on me is significant. And so that certainly was the case with Lolly and Julie. I, you know, I, I, as I say in the book, you know, and I, and I had, um, 
after I delivered the first draft of the book, which was a very sort of journalistic first draft, just mostly reportage. And my editor had really challenged me to go back and and put myself in, in the book. And, and I think one of the reasons why she did that, and I think um, why it's such a good idea, is that she and I were both very well aware that I was not entering this project with a great deal of objectivity, right? Like the story had been something that I had sat with for 20 years. It had at that point some real personal resonance for me. And so I knew going in that I had already, you know, had really, you know, kind of, I think, intense feelings about these two humans who I had never met, but, but who I had really, you know, sort of idolized as a young woman, once I kind of knew who their story was, and that I was also really sort of personally terrified about their end, too. So, you know, navigating that, navigating the relationships with their survivors, you know, their their friends and family were incredibly gracious in terms of sharing stories and photographs and letters and baby books and things like that. And so, you know, there's a lot of really powerful relationships that come out of that. And sometimes they can be really hard to navigate. But again, like to turn the tables, I would love to hear more about about your experience too. Um, well, I, as I said, I knew instantly my, my, my husband, when these stories hit me, he's like, there she goes. Like I was just gone <laughs> up to my laptop into the courthouses and doing this. I had a slightly, um, different experience with people wanting to share things. Um, inevitably almost all of them do, but it took so very long. You know, you said you worked on your book, you know, on and off for 20 years. Mine was seven years because you are asking people to talk to you about the hardest thing that's ever happened to them. And in my case, it was, um, first of all, there was like some real serious Christian values, but sort of of the kind where, you know, the wife should obey the husband kind of thing, which presented a very, very big problem in my story, which was the wife that threw the children off the bridge. And she'd been sort of asking for help for a long time, but was sort of told like, well, go home and obey your husband, who happened to be sort of a sociopath. So it's presented a bit of a problem. Um, but in terms of the empathy, you know, whether it was in this particular story or other ones that I've done, you're absolutely right. It's um, you walk in and you are almost in a sense like shape-shifting to people's stories. You really don't have any skin. And it's this sort of like porous exchange, which makes you able to tell the story, if not right away that day. I, I have many times after, you know, long interviews or whatever, like gone back to the hotel room with a box of takeout and watched the stupidest television show I can possibly <laughs> find just to like, I got to heal. I got to take care of yep. myself here. Um, you know, you do. And I absolutely loved the parts of your book where you're like, yeah, so anyway, I'm talking to the guy I had two extra glasses of wine. Sorry. That's how it is. It's like you were very, very, very frank. And I think that you absolutely approached it Right. You know, we, we know, you know, I, I, you know, sometimes the, you know, when you first start writing, maybe you use first person a little too much because you don't know how else to get into the story. And then you get older and you're realizing I don't really need to be here, but you did need to be in that book. And I did need to be in my book because you are acting in a sense as guide to the reader. You know, you are taking their hand through this difficult story. Like they need someone to actually hold their hand because it's, you can't be, you know, sort of just uh, completely objective about it at that. It, it, it needs a whole lot more than that. And, and speaking of that, which I, it might sound, I don't know, macabre, or maybe it's just because of the way that I work. And I know it's the way that you work. I just spent a really long time thinking about Lolly and Julie in their last hour of their lives. 
I couldn't stay out of it. I couldn't, I couldn't just say, okay, well now that happened and what happened? I'm, I'm, I'm going to get emotional here, but it was just like to, you know, you're like, what's happening? Am I, am I going to be smart enough to get out of this? Like, we're, why are you, what, what, if I do this, is it going to be okay? And just trying to think of the way they navigated the last hour or however long, because we don't know exactly how long he was there torturing them and killing them. And I just, I kept wanting to, I kept wanting to like go back and make the decisions that they made, make it okay. You know, like maybe like, I could have grabbed this or the dog did this, or maybe we said, no, you don't take, I don't know. Like I wanted so much to be able to, because they absolutely, I have to believe they absolutely and 100% were capable in the woods, capable young women, young, strong, funny, you know, in love and in an environment that they trusted and, and they should trust. And for this to come in and happen, it just was so not okay that I kept wanting to try to make it okay. And I'm wondering how you how you navigated that yourself. Yeah. Well, and that's why that's why this story, I think, really resonated with me when I first learned. I mean, I must have been, what, I think 23, 24 when I first learned about this case. And the thing that was so terrifying to me was the fact that these two young women were incredibly, not just physically and emotionally and psychologically strong, but they were incredibly skilled. I mean, they were literally backcountry experts, right? They had led at that point countless trips in all sorts of places, ranging from Minnesota's boundary waters to, you know, taking inner city women and children out on the trail to leading college trips in the White Mountains. And they did everything absolutely right. And not only did they do everything absolutely right, but they found and created for themselves this hidden campsite right? That was basically invisible from the trail too. And so the fact that they could do all of that, and then, you know, investigators believe based on how um, meticulous the crime scene was, investigators believe that this must have happened during daylight hours, which adds just another layer of, for me, terror to this is, I think we all sort of assume these things happen under the cloak of darkness. Um, but the fact that somebody was so bold and brazen and arrogant as to come upon these women at this hidden campsite, which while it was in one way remote, was also a third of a mile from Shenandoah National Park's most populated resort. And so this person had, you know, the audacity to kind of come upon these women and spend a good bit of time with them and never once thought or worried or thought, I need to hurry, you know, because people might find me out and then just sort of blithely, like, you know, disappeared into the mist. And so that for me is what's so absolutely terrifying, you know, is that there was somebody... And I don't even have the right adjective. Like brazen isn't even the right adjective to describe what this person was willing to do, you know, and that this person saw these two strong women and their dog and thought, yeah, I can subdue and bind and torture and kill them and then leave without a trace, which is exactly what happened. So I can't remember, but I don't I don't think they definitively know because they were never fingering him or looking at him as the killer. But uh, is it your opinion that he must have followed them? It wasn't just like random dootly dootly do. Oh, here's two women in a remote place. Do you think that he followed them? I mean, stealthily, obviously. But but what are your what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I think one of two things must have happened, you know, because this trail where the two women were was a completely disused trail at that point. As I say in the book, 10 years earlier, it had it, it was called it's called the bridal trail. And 10 years earlier, it had been used for trail rides that had left from this resort, um, Skyland Resort. But the trail hadn't been used in a decade and it isn't even on a lot of maps. There's no logical reason why anyone would pick that trail either really to walk on or certainly to camp on. And at this point, I've been there, I don't know how many times. And even with news of these murders, you know, kind of percolating in the air and on listservs and stuff for the last 20 years, I've never once encountered another hiker on that trail ever, Wow, you know? Um, so the big question is, how did they end up there? And so I think one of two things, I think first, someone may have recommended the spot to them. And the person who recommended mm. it either was the perpetrator or was a close confidant of the perpetrator, or oh, I wow. think the perpetrator wow. must have followed them. Like maybe one of them went up to the resort to use the bathroom or get a drink or something, and the person followed them down. But even if it's that latter scenario, the question still remains, how did they even know to walk down this trail to begin with? And that's a question that I've posed and never gotten a great answer for. You just reminded me of something when I was actually their age, I think I was 24, I took a like a 600 mile bicycling trip with a friend of mine up into Northern California. We're in a really remote area, but there was like a little, like one of those like little camp stores, you can buy anything, you might even have been able to buy beer or something. And we were talking with the owner and there were some guys there and talking and they're like, oh, where are you going to camp tonight? And we're like, oh, we're not really sure. Maybe we're and they're like, you know, you guys should go to blah, blah, blah. I can't remember what it was. Some site that was not that far, a mile or two in. And we're like, oh, that sounds great. And when we were getting ready to leave and go there, I don't know, like this little bell must have gone off because we're like, yeah, nah, we're not doing that. Because <laughs> yeah. they were like, you know, like two men that have like, God, like, Thank God, because you don't know what would have happened. Um, you mentioned their dog, Taj, and there is just, you wrote this scene so beautifully, Catherine, when, you know, Taj is finally found and they're trying to get him to show things and he does. And then they bring him to uh, someone who was a, was it a roommate of, was it of, of Julie's? Who was it that he ran up to? And was Lolly's shaking. former Lolly's former fiance Ken, who uh, was about a decade older, and um, they had met and adopted Taj together. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, and I and Ken very graciously had invited me over to his farm, and I had spent the day there. And that was when he had told me this story that, you know, once news of the murders got out, um, you know, enough of Lolly and Julie's friends or or. Um, sort of fellow students at unity were down around the Shenandoah area for the summer doing internships or whatever. And, and, you know, they basically created a phone tree and managed to kind of shuttle Taj from Shenandoah national park back to Ken in Vermont. And as Ken says, and as I write in the book, you know, Taj jumped out of the car, the friend's car, and then just very slowly tentatively walked up to Ken and buried her head between Ken's legs and just stood there for like 20 minutes and shook. And what Ken said to me was like, if that dog could talk, she would have told me absolutely everything that had happened to Lolly, you know, and that for me was just, you know, when we talk about these events, we talk about the initial trauma, but I don't think we talk a lot about the secondary and the residual trauma. And that's just, I think, sort of one small, but really poignant example of how that works. 
Well, also Taj had been such a good soldier for a while because Taj was able to, you know, lead people and almost provide certain clues, even, you know, if, if she was or wasn't wearing a leash, it just was, she was like on call on duty. And then she could finally go off duty. And I'm not even a big dog person who would like understand <laughs> this, but you, way you wrote it, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Now, now Taj gets to just be here and safely let it process through her body. Um, it was interesting when I read that section, I wondered if you ever came to points in the story when you were investigating and maybe started writing and say, said to yourself, I can't, I can't do this. This is too hard. And I don't mean hard because of the material. I mean, hard because I, it's, I don't know if I have what it takes to give this story what it deserves. Every single day. I still think that every single day. I know. And I, I think know. that's I part know. of why, I think that's part of why my editor was right that I needed to be a thread in the story because it was, um, it was crazy making and it was trauma making. And, you know, I went to really low places more than once. And I think I, I didn't want to do that to kind of show off to say to readers, like, look what I've been through and look at how hard this is. But I also wanted to do it to sort of say, you know, this is the reality, right? This is the reality of this work. And not only does it leave a really big mark on us, I think as, as people and as professional journalists, but also undoubtedly it left a mark on my approach to the investigation. And so I felt like the more honest I was with readers about who I was in this process and some of the, just the crazy making that I started doing, you know, I, I tell one story in the book about how um, unbeknownst to me, my partner had made an appointment to have a, a washing machine fixed or something. And the repairman just walked right into the, the house. And I, I lost it, you yeah. know, cause I was like, there's a strange yeah. man in the house. Yep. You know, for all I know, it's the person who murdered Lolly and Julie, you know, I mean, and as I also yeah. say in the book, yeah. you know, I started taking, you know, gun classes. I, you know, I had a pistol while I was working on this, which, you know, is so antithetical to who I personally am, but it felt like I needed some kind of control. Like the material was controlling me so much and I was trying desperately and I think mostly ineffectively to kind of retain some kind of control myself. And it just, it was, it was a tough go. So this is a personal like peeve of mine. I, I've written, I've written about more than one murdered child. I've interviewed killers. I mean, it's, you know, I sometimes enter stories that are very, very difficult. And I've had people say, oh, you know, you, you, your, your work, you write about such dark topics. And I'm like, please don't, please don't use that word. I find that mm. to be very reductive and it's like a shorthand for you. And I understand this, but it's, it's hard stuff. Yeah. It's hard story, but I, I don't like I don't like when someone categorizes my work as dark. Did you ever experience that? <laughs> yeah, I think maybe hard is a better word. But, you know, these stories that I tell, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I think, you know, this, 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 this concept of true crime as a genre, I think, um, first of all, luckily, it's big enough that it can hold a lot of things. But I do think right. there's this sort of, you know, kind of period, kind of like, rubber necking thing that happens in some true crime. And that's just not my bag, right? My bag is, no. you know, first of all, I want to be very victim centric. And I want to tell a story because not only can I can we somehow perhaps honor victims and get some justice done, but I'm always looking for those stories that also have maybe something else 
something kind of more universal to say about the world. And so for me in this particular book, those were really about um, wilderness access, you know, as we've talked about and how many people don't feel and understandably so don't feel safe in the wilderness. And then also this incredibly rampant phenomenon of confirmation bias among investigators. And so if I can, if I can use this, this, you know, so-called true crime narrative to unpack these larger issues, then I do really feel like I'm doing some good and, you know, and some important work that, that maybe needs to be done. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, if I had written the story that you walked into, I would have written it a different way. And we certainly know that, you know, true crime stuff can be boiled down to like, you know, the, you know, the stabbing motion and the darkness and the things and, and, you know, okay, people also eat that up and that's fine. Um, But, you know, there are, there are much different ways to tell these stories. I have a couple of personal questions about the gals and you that I want to ask, but I'm going to, because you brought up the um, confirmation bias, Oh my God. Well, first of all, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to, I'm going to ask the nice question of the investigators first, which is, um, which is the incredible fallibility of memory. I had something happen recently. I was with a friend of mine. We were walking down a subway steps and this guy tumbled in front of us and I heard this loud crack and he's there and he's bleeding from his head and he'd been wearing like a, um, like a white, like, um, city worker's helmet and it had cracked against the ground and flown off and da da da. Anyway, we got the cops and he was vomiting and bleeding and it was bad. And anyway, when the medics got there, I looked for the guy's helmet that had flown off his head. There was no helmet, but wow. I had heard such a crack of his head that I had in, I had created this helmet. It, he also had on like um, city worker yellow pants, so though that might have sort of like, I don't know, gotten into my thing. But we do, we don't understand, even, even when you are tasked, as these investigators were, with trying to see the scene clearly. This one investigator is telling you how he remembers the scene exactly, including that pot of couscous that they'd been cooking. And... There's no pot of couscous, which is amazing right. to me that, that that human beings have the need to fill in the story to something to that extent. I found that I found that to be really, really. And he was he was very actually a very sympathetic character. The way that he was filling it in, our emotions do this unbit, unbidden. And then, and then there are, it's opposite. Then there is the <laughs> deliberate. I'm sorry. I got so bananas with this uh, for my own sake as I'm a journalist glad. and for yours. No, I'm glad uh, that you're bananas because we should all be really bananas. <laughs> oh my God. We're going to get into it. The deliberate obfuscation by the park service, but not just obfuscation, actually preventing people from, because they were like, had hegemony over this. They preventing people from doing the right kind of investigative work at the outset so that you could hopefully get some information that is that is true more quickly, maybe not at all, but you'd obviously have a better chance. But no, they literally, for their own reasons, and you're going to talk about those, they take the investigation and they re-channel it somewhere so that inevitably it's either going to dead end or lead to someplace wrong, which in this case it did both. So exactly. let's talk about these. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about these people and playing cover their ass at the at the park service for a minute. 
or 12. Yeah. yeah. And so two quick pieces of background information. So first of all, whenever um, a violent crime occurs in a national park or, or national forest, it's the joint purview of the FBI and the National Park Service law enforcement rangers. There's two types of rangers. There's interpretive rangers who are the people in the Smokey the Bear hat who are leading the nature walks and reminding you where you can camp and things like that. And then there are law enforcement rangers who basically have all of the the powers and rights and responsibilities of a state police officer. Um, so these are obviously two radically different organizations in terms of culture, in terms of training, in terms of approach. So whenever these in these rare moments where we have the FBI and the National Park Service working together on a criminal investigation, there's just this huge culture clash. The other thing is that, you know, about a month before Lolly and Julie were murdered in Shenandoah National Park, another young woman named Alicia Showalter Reynolds was also very brutally murdered in a very similar situation just outside of the park, right? So now we have three young women over the course of about six weeks at the very most, who have all been brutally murdered in a very small little circumference. And the first decision that the National Park Service makes, which to me, I still just cannot get my head around, is they decide to deliberately um, obfuscate and hide news of this double murder. At first, they try to say, you know, it was a bear attack. Then they try to say, well, we think it was murder suicide, which again, these two women were bound and gagged. Their arms were duct taped behind their backs, their throats were slit, and they were about 30 yards apart. So the park makes this decision, and I include this internal confidential memo where they say, we're going to basically just act like nothing happened. We're going to instruct our rangers to, to outright lie to other park goers if they ask about it. And we're going to wait until the media figures this out on its own. And, and so for me, this is like just one of those incredibly chilling moments that if you put it in a movie, people wouldn't believe it, right? It's like Jaws and like, let's just let people keep going to the beach, right? While we know that there's this shark there. They had no reason not to believe that there wasn't a serial killer in the park. And yet they chose to deliberately hide it. And, you know, I interviewed a series of people for the book, including these women who I call the Anns, who were backpacking. And they talk now, even 27 years later, about how just deeply betrayed and hurt they feel about the park's decision to withhold this information from them. You know, so that all these years later, they still feel really traumatized by that decision. And then, you know, then there's the investigation itself, which is, you know, as I, as I kind of outline in the book, not kind of, um, do outline, just was literally just kind of became this like, I mean, the polite way to describe it would be to say the fog of war. I think a more accurate way to say it was that it was just a complete and total shitstorm, you know, and it led to these multiple dead ends and then eventually led to the indictment of what I feel strongly is the wrong man, you know, and that's all because of arrogance and bias and blindsidedness on the part of these investigators that only some of them are willing to own even today. Okay, so you say in the book um, that there is something called noble cause corruption and the kinds of ideal, idealistic employees that the Park Service tends to attract. Okay, I get that. I buy that. You go, you know, you're going to be one with nature. We're going to bring nature to the peoples, and it's and it's great. Um, and the fact is that the parks the parks are reasonably safe. I mean, you've got millions and millions of people that go every year, and you have, I don't know how many dozen, a couple of dozen that are murdered. So, you know, the odds are pretty good that you're going to be safe. However, 
you absolutely need to be honest, not just so that the, the FBI and whoever else can do their jobs, but you know, you have people that are hiking there now when you've had three murders in the same area. And, and as you said, in a, in a month, have six weeks, however long it was. And also the real killer kept, I mean, we're, we're getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but he kept killing. Am I wrong? Yeah. Well, um, right. Okay. The, the, the man we believe is the murderer, right? So, so over right, the course right. of about 16 months, there were eight, there were eight murders. Um, we know at least three of them can be, you know, confirmed as, you know, tied to one particular murderer. I make a case in the book, I think for why he ought to be seriously considered not only for the, these other five, but also for other murders around the country as well, too. But yeah, everything you're saying is true. And, and you know, this concept of noble cause corruption, right? I'm going to do the wrong thing for the right reason, right? I'm going to, um, okay. I'm going to discredit one source, or I'm going to lead another witness here, because I'm because it's going to allow me to make an arrest. That definitely happened here. But but I think there's something else that was happening here as well, too, which is just like corruption, corruption, you know, I mean, the mm. there was intimidating witnesses, there was the misuse and the total sort of, um, I just, you know, I don't even know what the manipulation really of evidence in order to basically, I think, frame the one individual who was indicted. I don't even think we can use the word noble to describe that. I think that's just... oh. Oh, absolutely not. I, I guess I guess the reference is sort of like, like you're saying, it's like, I'm going to do the wrong thing for the right reason. So I can think of myself as like preserving the image of the park. You know, we don't, we don't want to scare people. It's like, well, sure, you don't want to scare people, but maybe you do want to scare them or at least give them the information they need to know. Eh, yeah, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to go hiking this weekend because two women were brutally murdered last week here. And maybe I'm going to go do something else. I mean, you definitely do have some, some sort of villains here. One was, his last name was Yee, Y-E-E. And he's, he's taking statements from people and then just like, oh, no, that didn't happen. Oh, she misremembered. Oh, she saw that on a poster. It's like, no, she's telling you what you saw. And then you go back years later and corroborate it. This is just, I mean, this is, this is actually criminal. And I guess he didn't have a very good end, but there was this one guy, Mike McCarthy, who I, the insane lengths that he and the department went to in terms of time and money and effort and, and um, uh, what's that called when you, uh, entrapment, in order to entrap the, the wrong guy is incredible. It is, it's actually shocking that you could spend that much time, even when over and over and over and over and over and over, they're getting information that he's not the guy. They continue to pursue it. Um, I know that that had to be unbelievably frustrating for you, and you can talk about that. But before you do, I wanted to know if you had any update about Daryl Rice, who was th the wrong guy. Yeah, so Daryl Rice indicted in spring of 2002 for this murder, which then at that point became the first federal hate crime in U.S. history. Um, and so so for listeners who haven't read the book, I'll just say that um, in 2005, 
the Justice Department who had repeatedly tested DNA gathered from the scene and repeatedly had been told by the FBI's own lab that it was not Daryl Rice's, while at the same time, another person, the serial killer that I mentioned earlier, Mark Avonitz, he could not be excluded because the DNA was so close to a match. Um, Despite all of this evidence, they continued to pursue the case against Daryl Rice, um, got all the way to jury selection, and then as a sort of Hail Mary pass, they ordered this very sophisticated, expensive DNA test. It came back, said, again, this is not Daryl Rice. And so the Justice Department at that point dismissed the charges against Daryl Rice using this very sort of little known legal phenomenon called without prejudice. And that is usually reserved when there's been some sort of procedural snafu, like a um, you know, a witness has been witness said something that they shouldn't have said, you know, or somebody should have objected to something. And so you can dismiss the case basically because you think you're going to lose on this procedural error, but you still believe the person is guilty. So that was not the case here. They just couldn't find the evidence that they needed to implicate Rice. But nevertheless, they succeeded in having this case dismissed without prejudice. So Daryl Rice is, I believe, the only there may be someone else that I don't know of, but I believe he's the only individual in the U.S. who currently lives in this state of constant double jeopardy for a capital crime for which he will be executed if and when he's found guilty. And, you know, the amount of publicity that was brought about him regarding this case has basically made his life completely untenable. And I should say by his own, you know, by his own accounting, he has had a lifelong challenge with mental illness, um, with bipolar schizophrenia to be more specific. So he's already had some real challenges in his life, right? Like managing this significant mental illness. But that coupled with all of this negative press, right? In the years following the 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 um, the the dismissal of these charges, you know, he would he would come into a small town, you know, kind of looking to make a living and be an upright citizen. And people would be like, "Oh, the serial killer moved into town," and people would literally run him out, you know, with like you know, something out of a Frankenstein movie with like torches and pitchforks and things, you know? So at this point, he basically lives underground as an anonymous homeless person, because it's the only way he feels safe. And, you know, when we, when we release someone from prison, when they're exonerated, when the Innocence Project does their work and proves that someone didn't do it, there are automatic financial restitutions for that person who served time in prison. There are no financial restitutions for someone like Daryl Rice, whose entire life has basically been obliterated by this um, just again manipulation and miscarriage of justice on the part of the on the part of the largely the FBI. Um, and so I think that that's just a real um, human rights and social justice issue that while it's particularly um, terrible in the case of Daryl Rice, I think is also not only the case of Daryl Rice. And it's something we really haven't started to unpack is the way we treat these people who are innocent and yet find themselves caught up in this criminal system where they're perceived to be guilty. I think the miscarriage of justice goes a little way, at least toward you. You had a you had a stat in here that was shocking to me, which there are at least two hundred fifty thousand active murder investigations, meaning murders that have happened that you know they have not been solved. And of course, some murders are not going to be solved. But if you do spend those are cold years cases, and those are only the two hundred fifty thousand is only the cold cases. There are another. There are a lot of other active cases, which I think is even worse. So. 
so I wonder if you know if we if they if they didn't spend all their time and money uh, and 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 soapbox time pursuing wrong people like a Daryl Rice, maybe they could get some of those uh, those other cases actually solved. It's it's a lot of make work. It's it struck me, you know, they were doing a lot of make work by going after Daryl Rice as opposed to um, as to whom we presume the. Um, killer or you presume the killer is with Richard Evanitz. How do you say his last name? Ivanitz? Yeah. Evanitz? Yeah. And he went by his middle name, Mark. So Mark Ivanitz. Mark. Um, there is, I want to get to this in a second. I just thought, I just thought we could have a little lovely moment talking about the frustrations of trying to get FOIA requests. <laughs> <laughs> Can we pour a cocktail for this part? Because I'm yeah, going to Made in person. I I have had. I actually I was trying to get um the FOIA um records on someone who died in custody in San Francisco. He'd been accused of uh, child porn, but it wasn't really child porn. It was like he'd had sex with someone who was I think seventeen. In any case, um they they caught him and they took him to this courthouse, a place he'd never been, or and they were holding him. And while when uh, his uh, public defender went to go, um meet with him they found that he'd um hung himself with the uh uh, the waistband little like string that was holding up his his sweatpants now this was a really pretty big guy and it was kind of it didn't quite smell right that in a place he'd never been in like 10 minutes he could figure out how to hang himself from a doorknob okay they said it happened there were records. Of course, they wouldn't give them to me. Then they said they would, but then I could get the rest of them in 2026. I mean, it was in, it's insane. I had, or it's like, how? what? How many years am I going to wait? So I went to San Francisco, actually, to uh, the FBI headquarters, and it literally looked like something out of a Coen Brothers movie. Like, you went <laughs> up to this hallway, completely anonymous, doors on all sides with absolutely nothing marked, finally found this place, and this woman who is literally going, she's like, oh, who are you? Hold on. Hi, uh, so and so. So I have Nancy Rommelman uh, front here. So yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, he's not here. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and then they would not. They would not. They would not accept anything by email, whatsoever. Definitely no telephone talking. I mean, that was out. But you could fax something. I wound up actually sending snail mail to these people, and was absolutely stymied at every single um every single thing. And then in terms of my book to the bridge, there were still, I'd had to deal with tons of different law enforcement, sheriff's departments and, you know, medics and all this. And everybody was great except for the Portland police department. And I cannot reveal my source. However, about five years into my pursuit, I was pretty dogged about it. Someone who had access, let's just say, provided me with, um, 700 pages of all the police reports and, and various reports. And that's how so it that usually happens. Book. Yeah. It was not the police themselves. Some of whom were very nice, but they would not let it go for like, and it always kept changing. The reasons were different. Well, it's this. Oh, well, it's this. Oh, it's a, then once it was like closed and adjudicated and she's been put in prison, it's like, you could do it. Oh no. Well, you know, uh, so, but we exactly. So, but we wind up getting what we get because people realize they trust you. You've been around for years you are a trustworthy character. You do what you're saying you're going to do, and you're trying to do a good job. So, did you have, did you have anybody uh, sneak you something? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, and just to kind of, you know, further emphasize what you're saying about FOIA requests. I mean, you know, the the 
The number of FOIA requests, either that journalists or citizens or families of victims, the number of them that are denied and denied for unjust and unfair reasons is something that we all really need to be talking about, right? Because every American can file a FOIA request and and ought to have it, you know, treated with the same respect as, you know, whoever else you are, you know, the investigative journalist at the New York Times or whatever, you know, and the number of times that they get, I I had requested, so in the case of Mark Ivanitz, he committed suicide in a high-speed chase. We know he committed at least three murders. We know he's suspected of, of, you know, at least a dozen others. And I just said to them, you know, could you just let me know if his DNA was loaded to CODIS, which is the the database where all of the um, right. sort of perpetrator right. DNA goes, so it could automatically like, you know, highlight other crimes because there are these matches. And they told me that it was not in the best interest of the American public to release that information. To know whether or not a known serial killer who's dead, whose DNA, whether or not it's been loaded to the national criminal DNA database. Like, how is that not in the American people's best interest? It's a reflexive no. They know that they can do it. I mean, they're the government. I, I write for Reason Magazine a lot, and that this is one of the things that they are just like a dog with a bone. It's like they can say no because they're that's their offices, and it's like, oh no, you. It's like, but uh, wait a minute. And I I said this when I was trying to get the FOIA stuff. I was like, don't I pay your salary? Sorry, right. like, aren't you? Aren't I actually, as the American public, your employer? And don't you actually have to maybe do something that we, or at least some of us, feel? No, absolutely not. And they just can do it, which is just, it's just maddening. Um, okay, I'm going to back up a second, and I'm going to ask you two questions. We're going to go back to to, uh, to Lolly and Julie for a second. So these were things that happened to me, and I was wondering how you felt. Oh, one is just pretty basic. You were given, you were given pages that they had written from their diaries and, and, and various places. I want to know what that was like for you to get that you were, you were quite well into your, into your uh, research uh, on this when you received those, what was that? What was that like for you? Yeah. And so, um, so, and also to answer your previous question too. So because this was a federal court case um, and because federal criminal cases have such strict discovery rules, which is where the prosecution and defense have to exchange evidence, I had access to a lot of information I never would have had, had it not made it this far in trial. Um, And a lot of that information was um, gleaned by this amazing woman named Deirdre Enright of the Virginia Innocence Project, who was representing Daryl Rice and rightly sort of intuited very quickly that she was not getting all the discovery she was supposed to get. So she would, they'd be in court arguing a motion and prosecution would say, well, you know, on page 12 of that file and Deirdre would say, well, wait, I only have three pages. And this went on long enough that she eventually determined that there was an entire storage unit full of thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of evidence that, that the defense team had never been shown. Right, which is a clear miscarriage of justice. So, so it was through partnering with Deirdre and through eventually having Deirdre trust me enough with this story that then I got access to basically everything that was in that storage unit that otherwise would not have been made available to me. And that was how I came upon Lolly and Julie's journals, which was a really difficult. Um, ethical, moral, I think emotional dilemma for me. I, I had personally 
really wrestled with ideas like, am I going to look at autopsy photos? Am I going to look at crime scene photos? And then the same thing with their journals. I mean, those were, those were documents that they never, never intended other people to see. Certainly not me, you know? And so it was a really difficult question. Like, I feel like I am being intrusive and invasive, right? I am breaking their sense of confidence, really. And so, so, you know, reading it came with, you know, some real unease and maybe even kind of guilt that I was reading something they never intended for me to read. And then I had really difficult choices to make too about what of this very sort of private personal material to include in the book. And could I, for instance, look Julie's mom in the face and say, I made this decision, you know, to print this part of your daughter's diary. And here's why. And like, would I feel good about telling her that, you know, it was tricky. The thing is that, you know, when you stay around for that long, and of course, it is especially tricky with family members and loved ones. Um, but I do think and I and you you stated this very clearly um, in the book with Julie's family that they did trust you. And you know, you were around for a long time. You're not a you're not a parachute journalist coming in to try to um, to try to take advantage of a situation. You you were committed. Um, I received pages. Amanda Stott Smith is the woman who um, who threw her children, dropped her children from the Selwood Bridge in Portland, Oregon in 2009. And I had been working on the investigating for like four years. And I became very good friends with Amanda's grandmother, like to the point where we actually became friends. Like I would sit, we'd like watch Fox News and have lunch and drink cream soda and just like, and uh, she wanted to have lunch one day. And um, we're sitting down and she handed me something. She handed me an envelope uh, that were emails that Amanda had written, but basically to herself and not really sent. They were like drafts of, of they were writings essentially, but instead of writing in a journal, she was writing it on, on an email. Um, but I, but she never sent, they were just to herself. They were in drafts and I believe they were on her mother's computer, but somehow the grandmother had them and they were about 25 pages and she gave them to me. And I, just like you, I, I, it was actually, in, I, I took them and I went and parked down by some railroad tracks in, um, in Selwood outside of Portland and read them. And I, first of all, they were very, they wound up for me being extremely meaningful uh, in terms of what they, what she was thinking. Of course they were. Um, but also wrestling with, you know, how personal this is. And also there's mm -hmm. the legal things that this is still her artistic uh, property. You know, and she's living. This is still her property that, you know, you don't just because you own them or even if they even if she sent them to me as Nancy Rommelman, they're still hers. I don't really have the right to print them. But, you know, there are workarounds. And also this is a very it's a very squishy law. Um but I, I wrestled with how to use them. I, I hope I did it properly and I hope I did it respectfully. Um, um, but she. She, I don't know what she thinks because she wouldn't talk to me. So there we go. Um, okay, I kind but of the, a, that a, relationship right. with the that relationship with the grandmother. I think that's so crucial, right? Like I've had yes. similar situations where it's taken being somewhere and being someone with you know with them for three days or a week, you know. And you're right. Like it's it's not just sitting there with your tape recorder and your notebook and saying, okay, I'm going to interview with you for an hour, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to lunch. It's bearing witness, it's forging that relationship of trust. And, and that's not something that's taught in journalism schools, you know, but that's, 
it's a, it's a reciprocal relationship. And I think so many journalists think it's a transactional one. I'm going to sit and take from you what I need, and then I'm going to leave. Yeah. But that's not how you get those emails. That's not how you get baby pictures. You know, you have to build this reci- this reciprocity and this trust. And because you really want to, it's not just like, okay, well, here's my objective. And I know I'll go back every other Tuesday for three weeks. And that's not how it works. I remember when, when the crime happened, I did not even drive to Amanda's parents' street. She'd been living with them at the time for eight months. I did not go there. I knew where it was. I knew the address, but I felt that it was so invasive. It almost felt like I'd be walking into like someone's hospital room and any, any germ I had could, you know, possibly, I was so, I was so keenly aware of causing them any more pain. And this is not, of course, how a lot of journalism is done. It's like the next morning you wake up, they're hiding in the bushes, they're banging on your door. We don't do that. And yeah, I, I, I formed an actual relationship with her grandmother who I, who I really liked. And also what an unusual, crazy friendship, but Okay, mm-hmm. that's that's the way the world is sometimes. And yes, they they trust you enough, and she also trusted me. And I have it in the uh, in the sort of acknowledgments in my book. She said, you know, talking to you is the only way that Trinity, who is the surviving child, is going to know how much I love and miss her because she was mm-hmm. not allowed to see that part of the family anymore. And this is you know pretty incredible. I mean, I'm honored to do it frankly, as I'm sure you are, to tell these stories of other people that are very different. Um, I've a, I, I'm wondering if um, either of the gals ever came to you um, in your sleep and talked to you. No, and I've tried so hard, you know, I mean, and, uh, and I, as I say in the book, you know, at one point, I, you know, contacted a medium, and um, because they know what happened to them. And I don't know how I feel about the idea of the supernatural, but I am a scaredy cat. And, you know, usually I'm like, if there's a ghost, I don't, I, you, you can just go talk to somebody else. Cause I just really, we don't need to hang out. Right. But I have gotten to a place in this where I'm like, please, please like send me a sign, send me a clue, you know, nothing. Well, I, I have, I have, um, I wrote about a 14 year old who was murdered by her mother who committed suicide at the same time. Uh, the mother had had I found out Munchausen by proxy syndrome and it, you know, basically made, pretended the daughter was very, very sick and infirm for her whole life. And um, I guess about six weeks after this, but she loved her mother. Of course she did. She loved her mother. And about six weeks after the story uh, ran, uh, she, in a dream, she came to me and she said, I, 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 I want you to know everything's okay. It's okay. Like she was okay with what happened. Um, I dreamt about another girl who had a heart lung transplant, miss miss wrong blood type, and she died. I I I've sat with her in various dreams, but the the biggest one for me was Eldon. Eldon, who was um who was murdered by his mother, who drowned. He was a little boy that drowned. Um he I had a dream that we were, I was in his preschool class with him and I sat next to him and he had like a little, uh, chalkboard. And, um, I said to him, I said, can you write your name? Now he was four when he died. I was like, can you write your name? And he, he wrote his name and he showed it to me. And in the dream, he was telling me, remember me. Wow. That's, that's what we did. You know, that's what I did. And I was very, I was very glad to be able to do that. So, um, uh, I guess I'd ask you what you're um what you're working on now. 
Yeah. So another exoneration case, but a much older one. Ah. One of my ancestors was the second woman in the U.S. killed for being a witch. Um, This was 32 Ah. years before the Salem witch trials. And so I'm fascinated, especially right now and everything that's happening politically. um, I am fascinated with these very intentional, deliberate attempts to silence these strong colonial women. Um, and, and the kicker is, you know, the, the, the British jurist who started all of this, um, is the same British jurist who was cited by Alito in the Dobbs case about why, you know, we should be removing reproductive rights and health from women. So I feel like this is exactly the time to be telling the story. Mm. And wow. so, so that's what I'm starting to, to nose around and trying to figure out the narrative arc. Is this a book or an article or you don't know yet? I want it to be a book. Um, I haven't quite figured out how all the pieces fit together yet as a book, but I, but this sure. idea of, you know, this idea of this literal persecution of these strong women, most of whom were either, you know, preachers or healers and, and just the, the legacy that, that, you know, these, you know, 16th, 17th century witch hunts continues to have on us today is something I just need to figure out kind of how it gets structured as a 90,000 word project, but fingers crossed that it does. I I can recommend um, The Witches by Stacey Schiff, which I I reviewed uh, for Newsweek uh, a number of years ago when it came out. And I actually thought it was pretty good. Um, it might be might be useful to you, even though it's a little later. Uh, it's right behind see... me on my bookshelf, right here. Ah, <laughs> Maybe my blurb is on it. <laughs> it was really, uh, it was really, it was just so clearly showed, you know, how, I mean, we live, obviously, we live in an environment where, you know, the, the, um, the propensity to become part of a mob for whatever reason, for your own sort of teenage aggrandizement or, or whatever it is, is just, is just irresistible. We see it every single day. We see people burned down every single day. It's something I, I write about a lot that um, to know that unfortunately we are never going to not have that thing in human beings as your, as your relative attests to. So um, that is interesting. And I certainly want to read that when you, um, when it comes out. And I want to thank you so much for speaking with me. I hope we get to meet. I hope we get to have some drinks and, and slam our glasses down on the table about FOIA requests. (laughs) And um, um, everyone will put a link here so you can go buy the book and, um, and thanks so much. Thank you. And thank you so much for your attention to this case. I, you know, I believe so strongly in Lolly and Julie and, you know, you're, you're just light shining on their story makes a really big difference. So thank you for that. Well, well, let's get it to some more people. Okay. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Bye.